a lot of it feels quite mechanical, but there are moments of it. In fact, some, so the moment, there are rare moments when I'm actually typing that feel magical. I feel like, whoa, the words just flowing out of my fingertips and they're just the screen. It's filling up with words and I don't know how it's happening. And that happens about two or three times during the writing of every book. And it's usually when I've gone inside a character's head to work out what they're feeling. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi, wonderful Rights Women listeners. I'm Rachel Johns, Australian author of Rural Romance and Women's Fiction. My latest is The Workwives, which released last November. And I'm thrilled today and super nervous and excited to be taking over Pamela's convo account to talk to one of my all-time favourite authors, Lisa Jewell. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to talk to you after all these years of communicating with you on social media to have this actual real-life chat is a massive treat. <laughs> and for me, well, I'm amazing. You can remember, I think I'll let you, I'll just do a little bit more of a spiel and then I'll where I think the first time I actually remember you being on social media and talking to me, because I think we were talking before social media, actually, in a way. Anyway, we're old. If you haven't heard of Lisa Jewell, I honestly don't know where you've been the last 24 years, if the 1999 debut novel is correct, which I'm pretty sure it is. Lisa has published 21 novels. Her latest novel is None of This is True, which I think is such a fantastic title as especially for the genre, but any genre. And her very first novel I've actually got here was called Route Party. Now, this is a podcast, but I think some people actually view it online. So you may see me holding up Ralph's Party, which is one of my favorite books that actually got me into writing all these years and years ago. So I won't talk too much about my experience, but yeah, Lisa Jaws has been part of my writing journey right from the beginning and her writing journey, Party. She's now sold, and probably more than this, over 10 million copies internationally, which I just, it's just amazing to think of. And it's been translated into 29 or 25 languages. Probably more than that by now. Yeah. Every week I get another email from my agent saying I've got another foreign right translation deal. So it's probably more than that. And how does that feel? Do you still get a thrill when you get a new sort of translation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's almost a sense of, oh, I had no idea I hadn't been published there before. And it's just, <laughs> and it's exciting. I recently got my first publishing deal in Turkey. Um, oh, wow. And I, po I posted about it on social media and suddenly all these Turkish readers were just jumping on it. They were just so thrilled because they'd been struggling through the English editions. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. And they were so ecstatic that they were finally going to get their own translations. Yeah, no, it's always a really amazing feeling. To have had that many translations over over 20 novels, you, I imagine you, you get a lot of author copies delivered to you. What do you do with your author copies and where do you Rachel, I, at the beginning of my career, it was the biggest treat because, of course, they turn up and it's like a chocolate box because they're all different flavours and they all look completely different to your UK edition. 
and they're just like like a box of gems. And you just shelve them really neatly and look at them and think, look at my beautiful foreign editions. And then you get, as you say, 24 years into your career and you've published 21 novels in 29, maybe 30, maybe even 35 languages. And it's become a problem. It's an issue. I used to get contractually issued with, I think, five copies of each foreign rights edition. Yep. And now I'm just begging them, please just send me one. Yes, <laughs> I, can't, I can like, imagine. <laughs> How many do you need? That's a thing. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know what to do with them. How many do you keep of each of your other ones? Do you keep one of all the other English translations as well? They're not translations. So I mean. Yeah, the additions, the additions. Yeah. And they're also a problem. Yes. The longer you're in this game and the more books you publish, the bigger the problem becomes. <laughs> it's a good uh, problem to have. And I'm sure many of the letters on rights of women are jealous of your problem. Please don't let it sound like I'm moaning. It's a logistical problem. It's not a lifestyle problem or a problem that makes me unhappy in any way, but it is the logistical thing that I need to, that I need to deal with every now and then. Yeah, well, that's understandable. You did start writing in the 90s. And from what I know, I don't want to, I've listened to many podcasts with you over the years and I'm sure you've done hundreds of interviews of and told everyone the story of how you started. It probably feels you're repeating yourself all the time. So I'm actually going to ask you how you actually got into writing. I do know, though, was it true that it was a dare with a friend and that friend was Yasmin Boland? Was it? Yeah. Yasmin <laughs> Boland, one of your own world-famous <laughs> astrologist as she is, Yasmin Boland. Yes. Gosh, you couldn't make the stuff up, really, could you? But no. Maybe she could you see the future. No, she's not. She's an astrologist, not a... He's an astrologist. Oh, there's definitely something there. There's definitely a sixth sensey thing of some description going on. Yeah, definitely, but I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what it was. No, I've told this story, as you suggest, and as you can imagine, probably pushing 300 times over my career. And I never yes. get bored of telling it. I like telling it to people who want to be writers in particular. Because yeah, and I think people won't have heard it necessarily who are listening to this podcast. Yeah. So yes, if you won't mind taking us right back to the beginning, how did you get right started? Right back to the very beginning. Well, the important thing to, to bear in mind is, and I think a lot of the wannabe writers think that there's some sort of like golden gate or there's some sort of world you should have been born into and contacts you should have made and skills you should have had or qualifications. And I don't tick any of those boxes. I left school when I was 16 because I wasn't very academic. I went off and did an art course. I then went off and did another art course. I then ended up working in fashion, not fashion retail, shop floor, but head office fashion retail. I worked in a pattern cutting room for a while. I worked in a PR department for a while. I was just doing this really weird sort of just Quite creative things, all of them. Yeah, creative things, but none of them were leading anywhere. And then by the time I was in my mid-twenties, I'd actually left fashion behind and was working as a receptionist, which I quite liked. I quite liked being the hub of the company and the sort of social side of things. But I was aware of the fact that I had quite a creative brain and I wasn't using it. So to counterbalance that, I signed up to do some evening classes in creative writing. Working on that, that old saying that you should do what you're good at, and it had been the only thing I'd ever been any good at when I was at school, was writing. I like creative writing and I like poetry. And I had loosely thought that one day I might like to write a book. But at this point, I was 26, and I thought 26-year-old yeah. secretaries don't write books. I hadn't <laughs> been to university. I didn't get a degree. I didn't really read at that point particularly. 
similar to me, actually. That's interesting. There you go. Yes. So I just thought 26-year-old secretaries who left school when they were 16, who haven't got a degree and don't read books, don't write books. But then I ended up on holiday with, amongst other people, Yasmin Boland, who at the time was a journalist, an Australian journalist living in London. And she was a friend of my new boyfriend at the time, who's now my old husband. And we just got into this conversation on this holiday. I'd just lost my job and I was talking about going back to London and signing up with some temping agency so I could get some more secretarial work that way. And she said, isn't there something else you've always wanted to do? I think she was basically saying, I think there's more to you than being a secretary, which yeah. is, I think, that's <laughs> what we were saying about the sixth sense. She could see something in me. And I said, I would like to write a book one day, but obviously I can't do that. And she, as you said, she made me a dare. She made me a bet. She said, if I had a, I'm not going to do it in the Australian accent, but she said, if I had a sense of <laughs> every person I know who's told me they want to write a novel, I'd have a lot of money right now. She said, look, I can't listen to anybody else telling me they want to write a book. I'll do it. And if you do it, I'll take you out for dinner to your favorite restaurant. That Ralph's party. And that was the first three chapters of Ralph's party, pretty much almost word for word as they appear in that book that you were holding in your hand. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And then she, it was Yasmin as well who persuaded me to send those three chapters out to the literary agent. What was the response from literary agents? Ah, so I sent it out to 10. I decided I was going to send it out in batches of 10. I was going to hit 10 agents at a time with my three chapters, my covering letter and the synopsis. But you did your research. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I had the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which is this British catalogue of massive book. Yeah, exactly. So I had that and I'd done all my research. And in very quick succession, I got nine rejection letters. And that was, do you know what? It was just so fine because from my point of view, I had taken a little bit of time after losing my job. I'd taken some time off. I'd given myself three months after losing my job to do this. I had some money that they'd paid me off with from the job that I'd lost. And it was a holiday from working. And in mm. my head, it was just like, I'm going to do this for three months and then I'm going to go back to work. So it wasn't like I invested anything into it or that it was going to lead to anything. It was just an, it was just a break. It was just a little adventure, a mini adventure. So when I got all those rejection letters, I was fine with them. I was like, of course you don't yeah, want to publish wow. my book. Why would you want to publish my book? Who the hell am I? I'm a 36 year old secretary. So. But then, so then I did go back to work as a secretary. And then about three months later, I got the 10th letter and it was a bit snippy. It wasn't particularly encouraging. Yeah. She sent me this letter saying, I've read your three chapters and they're really rather good, but they're going to need an awful lot of work and I don't like your font. <laughs> so, yeah. But I just thought, oh, okay. But yeah, so that's what encouraged me to actually sit down and write the whole book was to get it to her. Wow. So did you end up going with her as your agent? Yeah, she was my agent for wow. the first ten, 10 years of my career, actually. She was the one who got me my first contract with Penguin. So she got me a two-book contract for Ralph's Party and a yep. second novel with Penguin, which was a contract which paid me 10 times what I'd been earning as a secretary. Wow. Yeah, so suddenly I was you know, in, financially independent. That must have been 26 or whatever. You must have been a little bit overwhelmed. It was. So overwhelmed because at that point in my life, I was living with my boyfriend at the time. By the time I actually got my first book deal, we were, he'd gone from being my new boyfriend at the beginning of the process to my two years, two years in living boyfriend by the time I got my book deal. And he was the breadwinner. Yes. It was his flat. He paid for dinner. I wasn't really able to contribute much to our financing. 
he was the one who was earning money and I was the one living on the temping, temping mm. money. So to go from that to suddenly being like, champagne's on me. Having your own money, yeah. I can imagine at 26 too, you probably had to, were you smart and thinking, okay, this may not last forever and I'm just put some money aside and think that I'll just ride this while I can? Or did you have then ambitions to go, okay, this is something I want to do for the rest of my life? It was a bit of both. I, it took me a long time to feel comfortable actually spending the money. You have to remember that money comes to you in dribs and drabs. They don't just give you a check. And then, then you have to pay taxes on it. I don't think I'd ever really paid tax before because I'd earned so little. So yes, <laughs> but I was still quite loath to spend it because it did feel like I'd won the lottery and it was a one-off thing and it was never going to happen again. But equally, I felt very much like I didn't want to cock up. I didn't want to make a mistake. Yeah. I'd obviously been contracted to write a second book after Rouse Party and it was hard to see beyond that, but I very much think my mind was on it would be so great if they wanted me to write another couple of books after this. A book. So, so that's yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah, at that stage when you decided to write a book and it got published, your hopes and dreams were just to keep going. I didn't have hopes and dreams. I've never really been a hopes and dreams sort of person. I don't do hopes and dreams. Which I is just probably a good of, thing in a way, I think. Yeah, I just, I just, yeah, try to do instinctively make a good decision in the moment. And then move on to the next decision and make another good decision rather than looking at something on the horizon and pinning everything on that. So I just yeah. kept doing what I needed to do and doing it to the best of my abilities. And did it well and better. And your book, I'd say your first few books were what we called at the time and sometimes people still do. And it's a love-hate relationship, I think, with the term chiclet. But it was a time where chiclet was booming. And I don't know whether you'd like me say this or not, but I remember that in 1996, Bridget Jones came out. And then, of course, obviously what happens um, whenever someone has a, a hit like that, then the publishers suddenly are hungry for other ones that are similar. So why, when you wrote Ralph's Party, do you, did you have any of that sort of in your mind? I wasn't really much, but I had read High Fidelity by Nick Hornby on that very holiday when, when yeah, Yasmin and I had that conversation. And actually, when I sat down to write Rouse Party, I was much more inspired by Nick Hornby. I was much more inspired by there was a show that was really huge in the UK at the time called This Life, which was about a house full of newly qualified solicitors. Oh, it was so brilliant. So I was much more inspired by this sort of, I had never even heard of Bridget Jones when I started writing. It's funny, I'd never yeah. even, I didn't read columns in newspapers and her book, I think, like, when did the actual book come out? 96. I know this because I did some research recently, but it was an organic kind of. I just wanted to write about the world that I lived in and I wanted to reflect some of my experiences. Of, it was just flat sharing and love triangles and boys and girls and shitty jobs. And I think that's why I loved it so much at the time. I didn't think, didn't know who it would appeal to. I had no idea if anybody okay, would say, like it. Because often people think, oh, if books are enjoyable and funny and light and fluffy, it means that they're not deep and meaningful and that they don't have serious issues. And I think that's the thing, all your books and all the books that I love in any genre, they are never just one thing. And uh, I feel like that's reading Ralph Party and the books that came after. It was always enjoyable. It was always relatable, but there was other serious sort of issues that you investigated. And I guess that's to me what makes a really good novelist, no matter what the genre is. Yeah, no, I agree. And I never, I never shied away from any sort of topics in those early books, even though they were essentially about romantic relationships. There yeah. were so many other things going on in them. I wrote a book called One Hit Wonder, which was basically yes, about a, a young girl who has to come up to London from the West Country to clear out her sister's flat. Her sister has just 
taken her own life. Yeah. And her sister used to be a pop star in the 80s. And her little sister's always looked up to her. And then she comes to London to pack up her flat and finds out all these unbelievably dark secrets about her sister's secret life. And there is a handsome, there's a handsome man in it and they do fall in love. But in some of those earlier novels, you did have some dark themes and stuff. So you, I read an article recently of an online thing where you said that you think you're always, something like that, I'm paraphrasing, but you were always meant to write thrillers. And yeah. so how did that sort of come about? Yeah, it's, it was an assumption that people always make that if you wrote in one genre and then you write in another genre, there must have been a, a moment, a morning when you woke up and thought, I don't want to write those <laughs> books it. anymore, I'm going to write these sorts of books. But of course, a book takes a year to idea. write. It takes a whole year to write. You're a sort of different person. Everybody changes through life and you start writing a book as one person and by the time you finish writing the book... Yeah. Your life has changed. Your circumstances have changed. You've become more mature. You've become more cynical. You've become less this. You've been... And so for me, it just happened really gradually. I say it was over a few books, really. They morphed, didn't they? Yes, they morphed. So I started off wanting to write a dark thriller. I was particularly interested in, before I met my current husband, I'd been in a terrible marriage to a coercive controller for five years. So I spent my early twenties trapped in this very bleak gothic marriage with this very controlling man. So when I actually sat down to write my first novel, but when Yasmin told me to write a novel, that's what I thought I was going to write about. I thought I was going to write about something really dark. But actually, when I got to the computer, and I remember writing the first paragraph of this really dark book about a girl who meets a man, and I knew that it was all going to become very dark. And I knew what was going to happen. I actually physically had to push myself away from the screen and I just thought no I don't want to do that I don't want to do that and then I immediately I deleted that and then just started writing this book about flatmen so that's what that's where I was at that's where my head was at I was freshly in love with someone I just got out of this dark marriage I wasn't in the sun to do it but it was obviously it was my favored genre I like reading dark stuff I like listening to dark music I like watching dark movies so it's, I like that kind of thing. My career has been very gentle to me in that way that no, no editor, no publisher, no agent I've ever had has made me feel like I'm trapped in a box and there's only one thing I'm allowed. So I've just been allowed to very gradually, as I've got older, as I've woken up every morning, a slightly different person, being able to follow my own instincts very gently. Do you think most of your readers have come with you? Yes, I do. I do. I'll never know that for sure. I can't go around and do a head count. No. <laughs> but it feels, it really does feel like that to me. Yeah, obviously there'll be some honourable exceptions. But most readers are open to reading, like most readers love story and they love character and they love voice. And your voice might have changed, but it's still your voice. And so they know what they're getting. Two weekends ago, I was in Dallas for Book Bonanza, which is Colleen Hoover's Romance Writers Convention. So Colleen Hoover started off as a self-pub romance writer. Yeah. And this is how she gives back to the community because obviously it's hard for self-pub writers to meet their readers and in any great numbers. So she throws this huge convention in Dallas every year. And it's insane. The 2,700 romance readers in one hotel. Crazy. And then there's me sitting there. I felt like such an interloper and I just felt like, what am I doing here? And everyone was wearing like unicorn, like I glitter, pink. 
sequins. And then there's me sitting there having written all these really dark books about the human condition. And I had a queue around the book and everybody who came up to right. me, I'm a romance reader, but I love your books. You're, you're my favorite thriller writer. Or a lot of them were just like, I, my favorite genres are thrillers and romance. And I do think there's about the human condition, aren't they? No, exactly. I think genre writers are voracious readers, whether it's romance yes. or crime, and then they're more likely to try another genre and then get hooked on that as well. They read sometimes a dozen books a week. And oh, absolutely. Voracious. Yes. Yeah, crazy. I feel like I'm just filling on and going all over the place here, but I would love, obviously, looking from the outside over the years of seeing your website, I guess, and then social media and then your different books being published. It looks like you've had a career trajectory that's gone, you know, high height, but I'm sure that's not the case. And I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about some of the highs and lows of your career and how you managed to get through the lower times and keep going. I have to state from the outset that the low times were not very low at all, but they're just comparative. Yep, okay. <laughs> writing, writing, my career has never made me sad. It's never made me unhappy. Yep. It's always been a positive and a good thing, but there definitely have been some ridiculous highs. And the outset was a high. Ralph's party, to get a contract like that for your first two books was insane, but it also comes with a lot of associated anxiety and fear. Yeah, because everybody made a mistake. They've given me all this money and now yeah. they're spending all this money on marketing and, and it's going to sink without trace. And so the fact that book did so well, and not only did it do commercially, it was received so well by readers and by reviewers. Critics. And stuff. Yeah. Critics. Wow. Yeah. Which was just the most extraordinary feeling. And that whole period of my life from that conversation with Yasmin right through until seeing that book riding high and seeing the reaction from everybody to it was just one of the most extraordinary, shiny, glossy, glittery, glorious times of my life. And then, yeah, then the next few books did equally as well. And then it just slowed down. And then I just got down to the core readership. And these are the ones I think I'm talking about when I talk. They stayed with you, they glued on. Yeah, these are the ones who, because lots of people read my early chick lit books because there was so much hype. They were yeah. hype. But then when the hype died down, I was w left with this wonderful, loyal, solid readership. So my publishers knew that any book that they published with my name on they it would sell, sell a certain amount. They'd sell a certain amount of books. But there was this struggle with them constantly to try and build it because, number one, that's what publishers do. They want to build readerships, yeah. particularly at the level at which I was selling, which was just so tantalizingly close to breaking out all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, so... There were just many books, probably from like my fourth book to about my 13th book. I'd say 10 books in the middle where they were constantly trying to build my readership. And then there was this moment with a book called The Girls where the Golden Goose in the UK, a promotion that you can get for a book here is to be on the Richard and Judy list. Yeah. Like we've even heard about that. You've even heard of the Richard and Judy list. And that was my big dream. And then I remember being, it was a October half-term holiday and I was in a hotel with my family in Lanzarote at the breakfast buffet. <laughs> and I got a call from my agent saying, you're on the Richard and Judy list. And that was a turning. 
Does that really make a difference? It's a bit like now and Reese with the spoon list and Yes. Yeah. That made a huge difference in perception. It didn't actually that one didn't impact my sales hugely. I didn't sell yep. that many more books as a result of it, but I think just ever since then it's just steadily got better. And then America happened, which was incredible. Do you want me to tell you the funny little story about then? Yes, please. But do. This is weird because uh, I, the perception of things is quite strange because what happened was then she was gone, came out in the US in 2017 okay. and it didn't really bother the New York Times bestsellers list very much. It barely bothered. I love it. <laughs> it didn't. It, ba it barely grazed it. I can't even remember if it made it. But Had you been published in the US before then? Yes, but tiny, weeny, weeny, tiny, weeny. Nothing, nothing. It was a nothing market for me. It was a really nothing yep. market for me. So your biggest market was the UK? Oh, by far. Yeah. And then, so then she was gone, came out to her, and it did quite well, but nothing to write home about. And then in March 2020, three years later, lockdown happened. And one of the real housewives of Beverly Hills, with three million followers, <laughs> a post on her Instagram feed with her holding a copy of Then She Was Gone saying, how do we feel about a lockdown book club? This is my first oh. recommendation. And a week later, it was in the top 15. A week after that, Amazing. Was, and then it suddenly it was number one. And the publishers aren't doing it. The publishers aren't doing it either. And you they, have to have written a good book for these people to want to share it. So that part comes down to you. <laughs> yes. And obviously, the publishers had to get them into bookshops in order for the Real Housewife yeah. of Beverly Hills to pick it off a bookshelf in the first place and buy it. So your career then took off in the UK, the US, sorry. Wow. Then, yeah, then it got to number one. It was number one for about eight weeks. Because it was lockdown and because I knew in a million years she wouldn't give me her home address. Yeah. I sent her virtual flowers. That's <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So that was a turning point. That was a massive turning point. Behind. And I guess you had to still be writing all those years. If you'd stopped oh, yeah. because things plateaued, then none, then that would not have happened. So. Yeah, but because that's the thing, every time I wrote a book during those plateau years, which is a very good way of putting it, um, it felt like it was going to be the one because the yeah. feedback, the initial feedback I would get would be just so positive. And then it's so disappointing when it's not. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. It's hard to be disappointed when you've got a core readership of five figures, not five figures, one, two, yeah, five figure core readership, yeah. you know, it's always going to buy your book. And your publishers will always want to publish you because you, they know they're always going to sell that yeah. number of books. Because so many yeah. people don't get that ever. So many people yeah. don't get that. And that was an amazing thing to have. But there was always this sense with each book, this is the one. This book is yeah. the one. And it just never was. Did you feel the pressure to have the one? Or you just really didn't mind as long as you kept going along? I would have liked to have had the one because it wasn't pressure. I never put any pressure on myself in terms of, Hopes, dreams, goals, ambitions. It's just, just keep going, get up every day and write some words and keep going of how I live my life. But I just wanted it. I just would have liked it. It just would have been nice. So the fact that it's happened in the US with then she was gone and then it happened over here with the family upstairs, that over here being in the UK. Now I'm just yep. waiting for Australia, Rachel. <laughs> oh, you're big here. No, I'm not. <laughs> oh, this is why we're doing this. People who love me in Australia love me, but I, I yeah, I'm waiting for Australia. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do a deal here. I'll make you massive in Australia and you can make me massive in the rest of the Okay, all right. Recipro we'll be reciprocal. 
So let's talk about the writing because I know you obviously, you've just kept going. Like you've said, you've just kept doing, you haven't had your eye on something bigger and better all the time. And I really think that's really important and a real key because if you want fame and fortune, then I do feel like you're always going to be disappointed. Yeah, exactly. No, and I would hate to live my life in a state of disappointment, which is why I don't set myself goals and ambitions and dreams. So you write one book a year? Yeah. And and I think you've written maybe two this year or something. Though. I mean, yes, I have a good store. Yeah, this is a year I wouldn't want to repeat. So one book feels like a good... I, what this year has done to me has reinforced what I already knew was a good thing for me in terms of how I work and my energy levels and what have you, is that writing a book a year is perfect for me. And I don't think I'll ever put myself in a situation where I need to write more than one book a year again. There's too much. It was too, it's been too much. That's readers are going to love having two. I hope so. Because the second book that I had to write, the reason why I had to write two is because it's out of genre and it's for a different publisher. It was a separate commission. So I couldn't, obviously, I had to honour my existing co- my my existing contractual obligations, but I also couldn't say no to this. So I put I brought this all on myself. It's nobody's fault but mm. my own, but it was something I couldn't say no to. But it is in a different genre, so my traditional readers may like it, they may not like it. Ooh, we'll I can't wait till you announce it. When are you going to tell us the all what that's Oh, it was supposed to be in March, then it was supposed mm-hmm. to be in April. Then it was supposed to be May. Then it was supposed to be two weeks ago. Then it was supposed to be last week. Then it was supposed to be today. And now I don't know. I'm be, very yes. curious. Anyway, let's get stuck into a bit about writing. I'd love to, I hear you, you are what we say as it's more of an organic writer. I'm going to use that term than say a planner who outlines everything. Is that true? It could not be more true. It's the it's truest thing in the whole world. And I love writers like that the most because when I read, a book and I think, say, I just read your latest book, None of Us is True, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But I just think, how do you do yeah, this? Because I know. don't write crime and thrillers and I write exactly the same way. So I always like hearing people who I love and respect as writers say this. Do you believe there's like an element of magic to writing? Ooh. Yeah, there is sometimes. It's not a constant feeling of magic. Most of the time it feels like the absolute opposite of magic. Most of the time it actually feels quite mechanical because you're literally just typing words onto a screen and you're moving characters from room to room. And uh, so a lot of it feels quite mechanical, but there are moments of it. In fact, some, so the moment there, there are rare moments when I'm actually typing that feel magical. I feel like, oh, the words just flowing out of my fingertips and they're just the screen. It's filling up with words and I don't know how it's happening. And that happens about two or three times during the writing of every book. And it's usually when I've gone inside a character's head to work out what they're feeling and that, yeah. Do you have any rules for yourself in terms of obviously you to do one book a year? Do you aim for a word count? What are your rules to keep this on the, yeah, keep going? Oh, my rules. I would say that my rule is that I have to write a thousand words a day. But clearly if I wrote a thousand words a day, how many working days are there? I'd be writing three books a year. So clearly no writer can write a thousand words a day, particularly a writer with a career at the stage that mine's at, which involves so many other extracurricular things emotional things and touring and events and spending a whole day at my publishers signing things of course editing as well which I don't include in that word count but that does involve a lot of writing in itself but yes but on a day when I'm writing which is a lot of days that's it Mm -hmm. that's my rule a thousand words I'm allowed to break that rule because (laughs) I rule and nobody's going to know if I've broken it and there are plenty of days when I do break that rule 
but I would say more days than not, I'll hit the thousand words. If you break a rule, is it because you're just not feeling it or you yes. decide it? Yep. It's because I'm not just feeling it. All life, all life is, I'm just in a sort of, yeah, life I've had all these years of knowing that my, both my children would be at school between nine o'clock and three thirty. And that was safe time. I'm now in this much looser time where I've got one at university who's coming back here yeah. and there and one who's been doing exams and it's, yeah. And it's all fragmented a little bit. Yeah. I guess in different stages of life, you have to re reassess yes. your routine, don't you? And be flexible to change your writing process. Yes. So when you start a book, let's talk about, no, 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 it's true. Because we may as well talk about a specific book while you tell us how you did it. So do you want to tell them the premise of None of This Is True, which I have just been luckily gifted a copy that I finished. I read it pretty much all day Sunday. I raced through it. Uh, I just thought it was so compelling. I can imagine it wasn't too much of a struggle because I think of all my books, some of my books are quite slow burn. Some of my books, you have to really stick with the first half to get to the meat in the second half. Whereas this one, apparently, you're straight in and you're off and you're out. Definitely. I've read, as I told you before, I have read many of your books. And so this is the most recent because literally on the weekend and it's coming out yes. this month, I think. Yes, yeah, so it is coming out on the 20th of July. It might be a little bit earlier in Australia because I think you have a different, I think you do Tuesday. The publication yeah, days. they do. Most most of the publishers do Tuesday. A couple do. Yeah, work. you'll have it on the 18th probably. So one of this is true. Is it starts with a chance meeting between two women in a pub in North London, and they're both separately celebrating their 45th birthdays. Alex is a podcaster, and she's celebrating her birthday with a group of glamorous friends and sisters and what have you. And Josie is a seamstress and she is celebrating her birthday with her husband who's 26 years older than her. So there's a contrast immediately between these two women and they have a chance meeting where they discover that they both share a birthday. And Josie becomes quite fixated on Alex after this meeting, mm -hmm. quite intoxicated by her glamour. Mm -hmm. The thought that they were both born on the same day in the same place yet are so different. And she starts listening to Alex's podcast. And she decides while she's listening to Alex's podcast that she might make a really good subject for one of Alex's interviews because her life has been very interesting and she's on the cusp of making great changes. So she engineers a meeting between herself and Alex outside Alex's children's school and puts this suggestion to her. Alex initially feels very wary and <laughs> as yet, like, yes, yeah, slightly, maybe, but no thank you. Uh, Josie persuades her and Alex has also found herself in a position that you and I as writers would un and listeners to this would understand of not having a creative project in the pipe work. So she's feeling that, that awful desperate that feeling. That pressure. Yeah. That you feel nauseous. I haven't got anything. There's nothing there. Yeah. And that's where Alex is when Josie approaches her. She's finished her series and she hasn't got a creative idea. So she takes it and she and Josie start this podcast and it comes very clear very quickly that Josie is not what she seems and Josie is hiding a lot of incredibly dark secrets and so the whole thing is just it's just it's full of this creeping unease this sense that something really bad is about to happen something bad has already happened and something bad is going to happen and that's all ramped up by the fact that 
this story is broken up with with scenes from a Netflix documentary that's made. I really liked that aspect of it. Yeah. So you've got people from two years in the future talking about their their experiences of what happened while this podcast was being made two years earlier. And yeah, that's so really that's, clever. When, at what stage did you decide to put the Netflix? Quite late because I was really, uh, yeah, because I was indulging myself with this like delicious weirdness between Josie and Alex and Josie doing these tiny little unsettling behaviours that was yeah. enough for me. It was feeding me and I was just really relishing setting this all up. But it was very quiet and it was quite slow. And I just thought, readers are not going to understand what's going on here, or why they should keep reading all the, the importance of these funny little things that Josie is doing. So I then, yeah, quite a way into writing the book, I went back and interspersed all these little and Netflix scenes. So the reader would think, okay, there's not a lot happening with Josie and Alex at the moment, but clearly <laughs> there's going to be in at some point. Happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's one of your sort of tricks of keeping tension and suspense in this book is giving us those little bits of the Netflix yeah. or having the instincts to know what the reader needs to know and what the reader shouldn't know and how to keep the reader on board. How do you work that out when I'm guessing what you started with is two people and a birthday who happened to be birthday twins? Is that, was that your initial seed of inspiration? There were three little seeds of inspiration. The very first one was yes. that. I just thought that would be because I've been wanting to write a stalker novel. I've been wanting yep. to write a stalker novel and never written a stalker novel. And I thought that would be a really interesting one. What did birthday twins meet and one of them becomes obsessed yeah, with the I other love it, one? Yeah. But that's obviously, that's a tiny starting point. That's one thing. And this is how novels grow. They, it's not just one big idea and you're off. You're gathering a little sort of shopping bag of ingredients that you're going to make something out of. Yeah, somehow put that together into a tasty meal. And then the next thing was just walking the dog one afternoon and seeing this man sitting in the window of his flat, staring at a laptop as I'm staring at a laptop in the window of my house right now. And I just looked at him. And even though there was nothing interesting about him, I was fascinated by what might be going on behind him. I just had this feeling. I just thought, I feel like there's something in that flat. Whoa. There's a door. There's a locked door somewhere in that flat and there's something going on and it's dark. And so he turned out in my book to be Josie's husband, Walter. And as yep. you read the book, you know that there was something going on in Josie and Walter's Ooh. flat. I love that twist. Behind closed doors. So I had to write the book. To, so that was the sort of in of, okay, I want to find out more about this man and his flat and what's going on. And But then the third thing was not the usual sort of thing that inspires me, which are usually tiny little fragments of life. But it was in 2021, I undertook a project with a, an academic, another writer who shadowed me for a year. Oh, yeah. Shadowed me for a year yes, to write a book. book that Rachel is holding in her hand that's called about Lace the Jungle. Yes. So he shadowed me yeah, to so he could write a book about the process of a commercial a success but selling writer. It was a really fun year. I really enjoyed it. And thankfully it, it was lockdown, which meant that it was much more manageable than I thought it would be when he first mooted it, when I thought we'd been doing a lot of stuff in person. He wasn't like sitting next to you while you wrote your book because that would be very... Yes, I had misgivings about that. I Exactly. I had thought that this could be problematic, but then lockdown hit just as we were building up to the project. But so there were lots of moments. I didn't know this guy at all when he approached me to write this book about oh, yeah. me. He was quite an unusual guy with an unusual backstory. 
And yep. I just had moments of thinking, what am I doing? Yeah. What if he's got ulterior motives? What if it goes wrong? What if this warps somehow? What if this turns into something it's not supposed to No, I can see the parallels now between that sort of idea and that book. And it just, it never did. It turned out to be a wholesome, lovely, delicious project. And I loved every minute of it. And I loved the final book. And the whole thing was really nice. But it did also feed directly into writing. None of this is true. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I know we're probably running out of time and I could talk to you forever to pick your brain, but I probably haven't asked any of the questions that people, you know, want to ask, me to ask. But what's your next, you've got that idea. What's your next stage? Do you just start writing? Do you think about it all for those three things? Do you just let them mull around? What's the process look like from idea to finishing a draft? It's almost deliberate. Once I've got my two or three little bits that I want to explore in a novel that I don't overthink them. Yeah, because you can. But then what happens when you start thinking, when I start thinking through a novel in my head before I started writing, I keep hitting brick walls. I'm just thinking, but then what? But then what? But if I did that, then what would happen? And I now know that I can't do that. I just need to keep those little ideas fresh and jolly and happy in my head until I get to the point in my writing year where I start. And then I just go. So you don't overthink it. Oh, because I know if I keep thinking about it, I'm going to find reasons not to write it or I'm going to add too many yeah. other things to it. To try And I just think, no, do that on the page. And this is what somebody once gave me the expression for the way I work and the way you work as well, clearly, is that some writers plot. I can't remember what she actually said, but she said, writers like us plot on the page. And yeah, what I, I like that. I plot directly onto the page. Yeah. Because I, I can't plot, I can't think too far ahead or I stress out and it doesn't thinking of things that are, going to be problems that are actually probably not going to be problems because by yes. the time I get there, it's gone off. And so I yeah, exactly. But yes. I need to, so I just go a little bit each, a little, it's that quote by the EL Doctor that drive me a car at night. You can, you don't have to see the whole way, you only have to see. Yes. So I, I absolutely love hearing people like you, but what, a, a couple final questions. Do you ever get stuck doing that in that way? And what happens when you get stuck? Yeah. Are you just... <sighs> Yeah, this book that I'm finishing at the moment, the Top Secret Project book, I've been stuck with it so many times. So none of this is true. It came out of me like a just, it was just there. Sorry, it was a beautiful book. It was beautiful. I do remember at one point I realized I let the plot unfold too fast. But that was simple. I just took some scenes I'd written too early and put them towards the end of it later. But that, yep. was, that wasn't a getting stuck. That book was just a dream. This book, I've been stuck constantly and every single time, it's just a matter of just working through it, just absolutely working through it. It's been horrible. I'm not saying it's been enjoyable in any way. It's been a shadow over me for the last, the the beginning of writing the book was really good fun. But then when I started getting these sticky points, the whole writing, oh, it has not been fun and it's been sticky point after sticky point, but I cannot allow myself to get stuck. Because this book, how it's going to say, because this week it's got a, you've got a deadline. Do you also have more faith in yourself now that yes. you know that you know it, it, you've been through this before and you know that if you just keep at it, you can do it? Yes, exactly, exactly. I know that that I can do it because I've done it so many times before and I've never not finished a book. So it's just oh. a matter of <laughs> sitting in the chair and thinking yeah. and keep going. And, and it, I feel like writing is a lot like doing it problem solving. It's problem solving. Isn't yes. It? But some of the joy of it as well is that quite often, and I'm sure you felt like this with some of your books, 
you don't actually get what the book is about until you've nearly mm. finished it. Yeah. And then that's a little magic moment when you suddenly think, I've just realized what this book is about. And then you can go back through and really ramp that up and fix it to make it fit the thing that you didn't know it was about yeah. until you got to the end of. And I think that's kind of where I'm at with this book. Whereas with none of this is true, I knew what it was about from the outset. I knew none of this is true. Whereas this one has taken me right to the end. Yeah. Well, I will let you go in a moment, but there's just two more questions that we definitely want to know. And my first question, though, is, um, I'm not going to ask that question. I was going to say any advice on switching genres, but we decided that you hadn't really switched genres. It was an organic thing that happened, kind yeah. of. I do think it would be quite a scary thing to do, though, to jump from one genre to another. I think that's a very brave thing. And I do get quite a lot of writers in other genres writing to me to say I'm thinking of switching genres. Is there any advice? And it's just, oh, I don't know. To me, it depends on the reason you're doing it. Well, it's both the reason you're doing it, because I think if you desperately want to, because you love the type of genre, you've got an idea that just keeps speaking to you, then I think that's probably the right reason to do it. Whereas if I'm wanting to do it because I've said, oh, look, Lisa Jewell had switched from writing chick lit to domestic thrillers and that made her successful, so maybe that's what I should do. That's not going to work. I think you've just given the best answer to the question. That's exactly right. It should just be because you've had a brilliant idea for a thriller. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a fun question then quickly. What's one book that you wish you wrote somebody else wrote? Oh, see, this is the question. I've been asked this so many times over my career and I always give the same answer. I wouldn't want to have written it because then it wouldn't be the book that I loved reading. Then I wouldn't have that experience Okay, what's your favourite book then? I haven't got a favourite book. I've got about 50 favourite books. I can't put one. I had to actually answer that recently. And luckily, it was an audiobook question that they asked me. And they said 15 favourite books. So that was quite okay. I could probably, (laughs) given time to compile a list of 15 favourite books, I could probably do that. But no way in a million years would I ever be able to tell someone what my favourite book is. There's just so many amazing books I've read. The book that used to be your favourite book in 2003, you haven't even thought about it. It's just, yeah. Don't you think sometimes going back to read something, it's not always a good idea? (laughs) Because, well, you may have loved something in 2003, but you may not like that book now. So much is mood. Anyway, final question, because I've kept you going far too long. What is at the heart of all your writing, do you think? Oh, I'm just going to say people. Just people. People, people. People being people doing people things. Curiosity about people, obviously. Which, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. 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 I'm just unendingly fascinated by what makes other people tick and what other people's lives might feel like and what it must feel like to wake up every morning and be somebody else and live in a different house and have had a different life experience. And so this for me is just an opportunity for me to just imagine being other people all the time and having yep. experiences that I haven't had and living in places that I haven't lived in and obviously every now and then I'll feed in a bit of my own personal experience or my own personal opinions about things but on the whole it's just you know and this is why I like writing thrillers because then you're putting people into extreme situations you um, can do things you can't really do in real life that you can get exactly, away with exactly exactly so yeah there's just people it's just people Thank you so much for your time. I'm absolutely, I've had a million questions that I could have asked you. But the big thing we are definitely going to do now is make you massive in Australia. That's easy to do. 
definitely. So I'll put that on my to-do list for tomorrow. And, and the <laughs> other thing I want you to do is write a book about romance fans and a big man. I want you to write a thriller set of book bonanza. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes, because I, <laughs> I would be walking past the, like, the hotel rooms in my corridor and every time they opened, I would just see this sea of pink feathers and sequins and unicorns and... And imagine if I'd walked past the door and there'd been like a dead reader lying on the floor. Please. With so her you on. <laughs> oh. So yeah. that's my dare for you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for your time. I've really appreciated it. And as I said, I'm a bit, I'm a bit fangirlish, so it's probably been an all over the place interview. So apologies to anyone fun. listening, but I hope you've got stuff out of it. Um, and thank you so much. Thank you so much. No, I, Oh, yes, I've got five days. So wish me luck for the next five days. Thank you. Enjoy it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. See you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>